Hello and welcome to the December edition of The Jewish Views in association with JW3. I'm Phil Dave and coming up on this programme. I'm Tony Honigberg. I'll be speaking to composer Daniel Kainer. He'll be telling me why he's taken inspiration from his late brother Jonathan and his son Oscar for his latest project. I'm Kate Fulton and I'll be finding out about Hesped, an organisation that creates an archive out of eulogies and memories of loved ones. I'm John Kay, and as the community gets ready to celebrate Hanukkah, how might it look in a COVID-19 world? Bushi Chabad certainly has an interesting take, and we'll hear about it from Rabbi Yosef Shafstein. And as if all of that isn't enough, we will have a delicious-sounding recipe for Hanukkah from our Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips, and our rabbinic thought for the month will come from Rabbi Mark Goldsmith, Senior Rabbi at Edgware and Hendon Reform Synagogue. But before all that, with a roundup of the Jewish news in the past months, I'm Vivian Krieger. Rabbi Lord Sachs, the former Chief Rabbi, has died at the age of 72. He'd battled cancer twice before and was diagnosed again with the disease just a month before his death. He was described by Prince Charles as a light unto this nation and by former Prime Minister Tony Blair as an intellectual giant. Rabbi Lord Sachs was Chief Rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth for 22 years and was the author of more than 30 books. He was knighted in 2005 and made a life peer in 2009. The Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, said his leadership had a profound impact on the whole country and across the world. The veteran Labour MP Dame Margaret Hodge, who's Jewish, told the party's leader, Sir Keir Starmer, she'd quit Labour unless he confirmed that Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't be allowed to return as an MP. In a showdown with Sir Keir, she warned him that her decision was no idle threat. It followed Corbyn's suspension from the party being lifted by Labour's National Executive Committee five-person panel, although there's been suggestions that two of the five voted against. The US President-elect Joe Biden has announced that a Jewish aide, Antony Blinken, will be the next Secretary of State. Although Mr Blinken has been critical of Israeli settlement building, he's apparently adamant that the Biden administration's commitment to Israel's security won't be dependent on the country's policy decisions. Pink candles were lit on the last Shabbat in November in memory of Sadie Salt, the toddler who died from choking at her nursery school just before her third birthday. Her family started a petition called Sadie's Law, which has so far got 10,000 signatures to get sausages and grapes removed from school lunch menus for under fives. Sadie choked on a piece of sausage. Intensive care medics at St Mary's in London spent two days trying to save her. Scientists in Israel have claimed a major breakthrough in the fight against cancer by using Nobel Prize-winning technology to destroy cancerous cells while leaving everything around them intact. Precise alterations to DNA can be made using what's been called tiny scissors to target and treat cancer in animals. It's hoped the process will one day replace chemotherapy. And finally, a GCSE student from Emmanuel College has composed a piece of music to mark the 82nd anniversary of Kristallnacht, which was performed by a string quartet in the German town of Zierenberg. Gilad Nachschen, who's 16, said his composition was inspired by his great-great-grandfather, who lived in Zierenberg and survived the pogrom, and his grandfather, who lost family in the Holocaust. Zierenberg, whose synagogue was destroyed in November 1938, commemorates the anniversary each year. Viv, thank you very much. 
You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. For many years, the Kainer family have been associated with astrology, starting with Jonathan Kainer and now his nephew Oscar. Well, now we can add another Kainer to that list. Composer Daniel Kainer has long been associated with bringing a smile to our faces through his unique way with music. Now he's about to go into a different direction that sees him combining his work with that of his late brother and, more recently, his son. Tell me more about the Kainer's horoscope song of the week. It's called the Astrological Song of the Week, isn't it? Well, it's, it's, I'm calling it the astrology song, really. I, don't, I mean, the idea, yes, it's a, it's a forecast that is basically a synopsis of what's going to happen sign by sign for you in the coming week, really just a, a line or a phrase or what have you, but it is based on the actual forecast that my son, Oscar, writes for the newspapers and also for the website. So, uh, yes, it's the astrology song of the week, I suppose. Very happy to have a better title <laughs> for that thrown at me. And actually, forget I asked that because uh, <laughs> there might be all sorts of smart Alex decide to uh, contribute something which I might not like so much. I'm sure you can handle it. Firstly, has there always been a fascination with horoscopes in your family or did Jonathan start it? No, I think Jonathan uh, started. I mean, one of the things about Jonathan, of course, I knew him before he was an astrologer and he had tried his hand at other kinds of entrepreneurial enterprises. But this one sort of fell in his lap, really. It was, you could almost say there was some sort of divine intervention, if you, if you believe in that kind of thing. I mean, actually, he and I were in Los Angeles many, many years ago. And I was out there trying to make my fortune. I was 19, 20. And he was my manager. <laughs> and we were struggling with sort of to achieve that. And then he was down to his last, well, he had no money. He went to some shop. Actually, it was a health food shop in Venice Beach, as it happens. And in it, there were some self-help books. And he would be absolutely skint. And there was one book on there which said, teaches, you know, how to make money out of doing people's horoscopes <laughs> or similar, you know, with one of those self-help book snappy title things. I can't remember exactly what it was. And he reached into his pocket and lo and behold, you know, as if by magic, where there wasn't one before, there was now a $10 bill. And uh, he took that as a sign, bought the book, and really the rest is history. I mean, I mean, there's lots of convoluted and rather interesting stories about how he ended up being, first of all, in Today newspaper and then in all the other tabloids in the UK, eventually settling in the Daily Mail and in all publications around the world. But yeah, that's where it started. What was remarkable about it was that it suited his disposition. It was almost as if he was born to be an astrologer because he always had the gift of the gab. And he always had an interest in the esoteric arts. And the two things came together. And he was a, you know, an excellent writer. And all of a sudden, Jonathan Cain of the Astrologer was born. It's amazing what comes out of... You had nothing in his pocket and suddenly, you know, there's this $10 bill. It's amazing what comes out of nothing, really. Yes, look at it as what you want. I mean, one in a million things happen all the time, I suppose. Is there just coincidence or who can say? But however, we might sort of want to explain this thing away, but it fits rather well with the whole sort of idea of his... I mean, from my own point of view, I've been around him for all these years and sort of worked behind the scenes, really, with a lot of the audio and video that we used to do. And I was never the astrologer. And in fact, I always had a sort of wry, one eyebrow raised at the concept. But really, I've seen sort of too much. I can't tell you why it works. 
or even if it works, but there's something about it. There's some connection. There's something happening, and there are miracles all over the place that are unexplainable. <laughs> so uh, why not this? <laughs> Absolutely. Why not? More recently, though, we've seen your son Oscar carrying on Jonathan's work. Yes. You must yes. be really proud of his achievements. Well, yes, although it wasn't really Oscar's sort of raison d'etre. Basically, he was sort of being groomed is the wrong word. <laughs> but you know, he was, the idea was that Jonathan was looking at some point that perhaps he might retire and he needed somebody to sort of really maybe take over, to keep the family name going and all those sorts of things. And none of his Jonathan's own children wanted to do it. And so Oscar, who sort of said, oh, all right, then I will. So he went off and sort of Jonathan took him under his wing a little bit. Mm-hmm. And he Oscar did the astrological exams because there are such things. Would you, you didn't even get a degree in it. Would, who, who knew? And the idea was that Oscar would sort of kind of take over at one point or at least be the keeper of the archive and be able to select. Because Jonathan this huge amount of material that he'd written over the years. So that was the idea. And then Jonathan decides to go and um, snuff it on us. And Oscar was a little bit unprepared. You might say, didn't either of them see it coming? And I can't possibly comment. But the point was Oscar's suddenly thrust into that position, perhaps earlier than he might have expected. And has done a remarkable job, actually, in being able to take on that responsibility. Because they're hard shoes to fill. As you know, Jonathan was a huge name in this mm. world. I mean, all over the English speaking world and he's translated into so many different languages and what have you so it was a little bit intimidating for him but he's done really well with him i've got to ask this question and we Mm -hmm. did touch on it a little bit but how accurate is astrology well it's as accurate as you feel it is but to astrologers they're looking at the calculations and the ideas and the symbolism of it is remarkably complex. And surprisingly, when you do have a full chart done, it does feel remarkably accurate. Why that is, who can say? I mean, the categories and the concepts involved are actually fairly standard psychological traits. But the issue with what we know is astrology, which is popular astrology, which is sun sign astrology, is a slightly different kettle of fish because we're all more than just our sun signs. I mean, it's just 12 of the population. Obviously, there's a lot more that is uh, going on in our character than just the sun sign. In fact, the sun sign idea only really came up in the 1930s, first starting the Daily Express, actually. Oh, was he? I didn't know that. Well, I think what happened was the editor went to a pal. Jonathan used to know all the details. He went to a pal and said, oh, what about doing an astrology column? Let's call him Galileo or something. And he said, well, you can't do that. It's far too complicated. It's what have you. But he had a thought about it. He says, well, I suppose we could do sun signs. And that was it was born. And that's become the way that we recognize it, at least in a popular fashion. But it's a little bit broad, really. And sometimes it can seem like your sun sign reading is really speaking to you. And sometimes perhaps it doesn't. But the point is that part of it is the ability of the astrologers to be able to write well and communicate communicate well and to be able to have an understanding of the human condition that resonates and certainly that's something that Jonathan and Oscar in his footsteps are are able to do remarkably Mm. well so it's as much motivational speaking as it is astrology in my opinion. As well as your song of the week which we'll come on to what else are you doing? Well, I'm still doing this sort of ever-evolving one-person show of musical storytelling with Jewish themes, and I was up until lockdown. Well, I just finished my fifth off-Broadway run with it and playing in various concerts around the world, and I still am doing various online concerts while we can't be live. Sure. 
So I'm still doing that. Plus, some of my material, my more plaintive, more contemplative stuff, if you're not familiar with my work, is that what I specialise in are these musical storytelling songs, which are rather humorous, but also have something substantial in them as well about the human condition. But I also have some sort of shorter ones, which some of which have been taken up and are being sung as we speak. As we uh, speak in, now. In the temples in America. There are a few cantors are doing a few of my songs, and quite a few of them were done over the high holidays, actually. <laughs> really? Yeah, a real surprise to me. I had no idea when I started on that particular journey that that's what that would lead to. I was very sort of apprehensive about the idea and sort of absolutely riddled with imposter syndrome. And <laughs> suddenly, well, not suddenly, actually over a period of some years, as I've become more comfortable with the idea of being this kind of uh, sort of Jewish philosophizing songwriter, so have other people, and they've started to cover the work, which has been quite remarkable. So the royalty checks are dropping on your mat as we speak, oh, yeah. I hope. Believe me, I'm rolling in cash on the bed is what I'm doing as we speak. But yes, uh, I'm, although there is actual royalty collection, because of music in American reform synagogues is quite a big deal, there is some way of a collection agency, which apparently you're supposed to read, if you use this, if you use somebody else's somebody's material, you've got to service, register, haven't you? You're supposed to yeah. register it, and, and then eventually, after it's gone through various filters, your composer, i.e., me or others, gets a couple of pennies. There must be immense pressure on you to churn out a new song every week. Yeah, the, oh, well, it is. It's an, actually, it's an awful lot of work because, like with everything, what you see is not all of what was there. Yes, it is a lot of pressure. But I used to do this before. I used to do a lot of radio work doing a topical song about the news. So I'm kind of used to that deadline thing. In fact, I used to do it on TV as well. But the idea of doing one one a week, yes, it is an awful lot of work and it's a lot of pressure, but it's something that I'm used to. Plus this one, the astrology song of the week, I'm using the same, pretty much the same structure each week. I'm just changing the content. So although that needs writing and needs fitting in and a performance needs cultivating, it's not quite as hard as writing something from scratch. Do you have one in front of you? Can you give us a little tease of one of your, or this week's or last week's? Well, I... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> now that's not fair is it putting me on the spot like that i i can probably just even possibly play what what we got here leos forgiven let go virgos take that leap of faith libras have no doubt you know what you know scorpios the future looks great Follow this advice and you can't go wrong. There is a certain amount of skill involved in order to be able to basically take these forecasts, distill them down to a simple idea, and then also make it right and give it a tune, for goodness sake. It's been brilliant. How do people get more information for this? Well, if they want to see the astrology song, they can go to Kana.com, which is the astrology site. Sure. But my own website is DanielKana.com. Kana is C-A-I-N-E-R. And in fact, there's links to all that there and all the other stuff that I do, all the things which I would rather I was remembered for. Although I'm proud of the astrology song as well, don't get me wrong, because the same skill and the same communication is, is involved. So that's where they can find me at DanielKana.com. It's called Kana's Horoscope Song of the Week, or the Astrological Song of the Week, and we've been hearing about it from the man behind the music, Daniel Kana. Thank you for speaking to us on The Jewish Views. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. 
Now, the passing of loved ones isn't exactly a subject we enjoy talking about, but there's no denying it is a massive part of our lives. Often at a funeral or levia, relatives of the deceased will read out memories of those that have passed. Inevitably, those words are never to be heard again. But our next guest, Miriam Grabina, is trying to change that. Miriam has founded a website called hesped.org, an online treasury of eulogies from Jewish funerals and shivers or evening prayers. I'm pleased to say that Miriam joins me now. So where did this idea come from? What, what made you want to, to start this project? It's a very good question. It's an idea that brewed for a very long time. I was always impressed when I went to a funeral or to a shiver when I heard the story of somebody's life. Sometimes it was somebody who I knew. Sometimes I'd gone along to show respect and support to relatives of somebody I didn't know very well and would invariably come away with a sense of who this person was, sometimes even feeling some sadness that I haven't had a chance to sit down and talk with them about their lives because they've done some very interesting things. I think really that the seed of the idea developed about seven years ago when both my parents died and I found myself with the rather awesome responsibility of finding the words, the right words to say in that very raw moment. And what is rather remarkable is that you, you do find those words. So I think I initially after the loss of my parents, I was immersed in, in the administrative issues of dealing with their affairs. But this idea was building and wouldn't go away. And I thought, well, what happens to these fascinating stories? They end up in a piece of paper in somebody's bottom drawer in a box in the attic. And they're precious. And it struck me that it was such a pity that as a community, we were losing these stories, which are so important to telling of our community, of contributions to society. Many people who came in the 20th century from countries far away came and settled here. What's the name Hesped? Where does that come from? Hesped, as, as you rightly described in your introduction, is actually the Hebrew word for a eulogy. But it also comes from the same root, which is the, from the verb to lament. It's actually the, the action of eulogizing. And we've, we first hear about eulogizing in Torah when Sarah, Abraham's wife, dies. And he's the first person who we hear who actually mourns for his wife. Oh. So we've lost somebody that we love. Who, who approaches you? We, we've, we've, we've got this sort of this, this speech in our hand. What do we do with it? We want to memorialise it to, to, to for future generations. I think what my task has been in this last year since we launched the project, which I'd like to say is, is purely philanthropic. It has no agenda other than to preserve and hold these precious stories. So right. somebody comes to you with, with their talk or with their, with their speech or their few yeah. words that they want to say. Yeah. How do they upload it? What, what happens? Are they given a sort of a site, if you like, a corner mm. of the site for their, for their, for their loved right. one? So I have 
spent the last year since we launched the project trying to spread the word to let people know that this archive does exist and really inviting people to visit the website, both to read the Hespedim of others, and if they have words that have either been delivered from, from a text in, in written form, or if it's been recorded, because not everybody writes down what they want to say. So we do have a facility for uploading sound files. So if somebody wants to contribute words about their loved one to the archive, they submit it via the contribute section on the website. And then we in the Hesbed team actually upload it to the and once website. It's, once it's on the website, is it then available to anybody, to any member of the public to, to read? Yes. Yes, yes. What about if you want to add a few photographs or a bit of a video of that person so they feel as though they had been alive to, to people looking? Well, that we, we, we have photos and I think the photos very, very valuable. And it's very interesting, the photo that people choose. Sometimes they choose a photo from a long time ago when the person perhaps who died when they were quite old was in their youth Sometimes they choose a very recent photo, but we love a photo. There isn't, there isn't a facility for, for a video. It's an interesting idea, but certainly a photographic image is, is there and, and very, very welcome. I remember actually reading some, I think I once went to Ground Zero and there was a, some kind of QR code that you could hold your phone mm-hmm. over, yeah. the name of the person. Then they sort of you found out a whole lot more about them. And there's something about that person not just being a, some initials engraved in a stone, mm-hmm. but a real person who had had a life. And it does make you feel, it makes you feel terribly mortal yourself because you can then relate very much to this person who was moving and putting these sort of images in. And is that the, is that the concept of what you're trying to do to, to show future generations that this was a real life lived? I think it's Im- important to hold a a record of that life that was lived. But I think a Hesped is a very particular thing. It's not a CV. It's not an obituary. It doesn't just talk about what somebody did. It's about who they were. And I think that is the the intrinsic power of a eulogy in that it, it somehow captures the essence of somebody some of the Hespedim that we so far we're holding are written by members of clergy, by, by rabbis who you know are professionals. It's part of their role and their craft to, to write. But I think what is particularly impressive is that individuals who would never profess to be writers, who perhaps would say, oh, you know, oh, I can't write or I wouldn't know how to do that. Faced with this responsibility and they come up good. Well, you have to get it right. You know, Mm. can you amend it afterwards? Can you go back in and amend your contribution? I think there's always the opportunity for a stone setting where, you know, some months after that very raw period of, of funeral and shiver, where I think people have time, they have a different perspective. 
I think sometimes stories come to mind that they'd forgotten about at that time. And it is an opportunity at a later date. And in fact, we include where, where people want to. We then almost like as an addendum, we add a stone setting eulogy. In, in one particular case, I'm thinking actually the family, various members of the family sent me the Hespedim that they delivered for a parent. But then after it was after that initial period of mourning, they were going through the father's belongings and came across some some very special items which told them a little bit more that perhaps they hadn't appreciated. And in fact, we sort of added it almost as a sort of as a PS, as an editorial PS. But I think what is perhaps appropriate is to actually honour that piece that was spoken as it stood. As it stood, absolutely. And there isn't, when we were developing and there was an idea, would would we have comments, you know, would we allow people to contribute? But I think the purity is in the Hesped itself, and that is what we wanted to hold. Miriam, that's a beautiful idea, and I hope that people will go to the website and find out more about it for themselves. If you'd like to look at the website, it's called hesped.org, and that's H-E-S-P-E-D dot org. And you can speak to the founder, Miriam Grabina, whose details will be on the website. Miriam, thank you very much for speaking to us on this month's edition of The Jewish Views. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. As has been the case with many religious festivals, this year Hanukkah is set to look a bit different. Thanks to the pandemic, I'm afraid, synagogues up and down the country are trying to come up with ways to ensure some celebrations do happen away from home. However, it's not very likely we'll be able to meet safely in large crowds. That is, unless you happen to go along to an event organised by Bushi Chabad. Rabbi Yosef Shafstein is from Bushi Chabad. He joins us now. Rabbi Shafstein, what are you planning for Hanukkah in Bushi? We are planning a really, really exciting event. It's called the Great Bushy Drive-In Hanukkah Celebration. And what it's going to be is people will be coming in their cars and we'll have a beautiful, massive menorah lighting, as well as a light show and lots of Hanukkah music, party boxes for each car. And it will be a really beautiful event, a safe event and a beautiful community event. The feedback so far has been absolutely incredible. In the first week of bookings, we've had over 100 cars that are booked. So we're really looking forward to this. How many cars can the event take? Actually, we've just opened the second shift because we were overbooked on the first one. So we're still taking reservations and we'll see how much we can fit in. So you've got a session at five o'clock in the afternoon that's full, but you're doing another one later. Yeah, 7.30. So how many cars each time can you actually take? We're, we're still judging how many we can squeeze in. At the moment, it's around 150, but we'll have to see how much we can get. And where is this taking place? It's taking place in Bushy. We're renting out one of the uh, schoolyards, a very nice area we're going to use, and um, it will be a beautiful event. We had heard there are some shawls that have done some sort of services in a car park. And we know from watching the American elections that Joe Biden had his rallies, you know, safely with people in cars. 
Is it from ideas like this that you spotted, you thought, ah, there's an idea for Hanukkah? It's interesting. Yeah, in a sense, yeah, but in a way, it's actually a, a bit different than those. So what we've been doing since COVID and since the lockdown, one of the, you know, one of the, the devastating factors of this, besides for the health aspect of it, has been the connection people have lost, the connection with community, family, and friends, and that's a very important aspect of people's lives. So a lot of the things that we've been doing is trying to trying to keep that connection going or maybe even grow it in a certain sense. So like, for example, when the Festival of Shavuot came, we had a program where people nominated friends or families in Bushy to receive a cheesecake. When the lockdown hit, we had people nominating random people around Bushy to get a challah for Shabbat. It's these things, these small things that keep community together and keep, you know, keep people, they realize that they're being thought about and people still care about them. So it was in that view that our team got together and we were thinking, what are we going to do for Hanukkah? How are we going to keep this connection? Because, you know, Hanukkah is always such a beautiful time. You know, families get together. It's one of the most widely celebrated festivals on the Jewish festival. And it always has this very warm feeling of, of togetherness, which this year is, is, is particularly hard. So we were thinking, how can we, how can we have this feeling of togetherness on such an important festival? And, you know, there's things out there like drive-in events and stuff, but lots of these drive-in events are more focused on, you know, people in their cars experiencing an, their own event in the car. So this is kind of different. This is about everyone experiencing one event together. And at the event, people will be joining each other from their own cars, but participating together in one theme and one concept. So that, so in a way, yes, we've learned it from these other events, but we've also tweaked it to have this feeling of togetherness, which we think is so important. Will people be able to get out of their cars? We're keeping people in the cars for safety reasons, but there'll be a game that everyone will participate in, the music people are able to participate in from their cars. So it's going to be a, a very, very nice and interactive event in a safe way. And of course, when you normally have Hanukkah events for a big crowd, I went to one, I remember a few years ago in Golders Green, you give out donuts and that sort of thing. You've got them in boxes for the individual cars. What's going to be in the boxes? Yeah, so every car is going to get a party box. There's going to be Hanukkah foods like donuts and then crafts for the children in the cars. So, so as the car comes in, they'll each get their party box and, and they'll have a beautiful little party in their car with their, with their bubble. And I, I just like to mention that Chabad's across the country and really across the world are doing this now. And it's, it's really bringing a new light to Hanukkah in these dark times. Although, of course, Hanukkah is primarily a home festival, isn't it, really? It, yeah, it's, inter it's interesting. Hanukkah is always, is always is one of the most widely celebrated festivals in the Jewish festival, on the Jewish calendar. And people have a very warm relationship to it, you know, whether it's with the family gathered together, the donuts, the latkes, sitting around the menorah. But what's interesting is a very warm feeling people associate with Hanukkah is sitting around the menorah and watching the candles glow. And the menorah, you put not in, in your, on your kitchen table, but you have put it at the window facing outside. And it's that image of, you know, the dark, the dark world out there. And it's dark out there. And, and Hanukkah is one of the most darkest, you know, periods in the, on the calendar, you know, the, dark, the longest nights. And you watch as the flames, they're unintimidated by the darkness. They just, they just shine their light, unintimidated. And it's a, it's a beautiful sight. And it's interesting because there's two fascinating facts about light. And I think Hanukkah really is all about light. And that's what's so attractive to it. The first thing is that light is always more powerful than darkness. You, know, you could have a very dark world out there, but a candle, all you need to do is light a candle 
and, and it will light up your way. And the second thing is, if you share light, if you take a candle, light another candle on another candle, not only won't the original candle, candle uh, its light diminish, but the room will become lighter for everyone. And our sages say, and this is true with the, with the world around us as well, is that that's the same, in the same sense, if you want to push away darkness, if you're in a dark situation or the world seems bleak, the way to do that is with light, with spreading light, with spreading goodness, kindness, more mitzvot. And the more of yourself that you give up to light up someone else's life, not only won't your light be diminished, but the world will become a lighter place for everyone. And I think that's what's so beautiful about Hanukkah. You watch those candles light up the world unintimidated. And that's, and that's really our mission in the world, really, in a sense. It's interesting because in the temple where the, the original miracle of, of Hanukkah happened, Usually in the olden days, the windows, the way they had the windows was they were, wide, they were wide on the inside and narrow on the outside. So the light can flow in and spread around the home. But in the temple, the windows were actually the opposite way around. They were narrow on the inside and wide on the outside. And the Talmud tells us the reason for that is because the temple's light was there, not for the temple, but to make the world a brighter place. So on Hanukkah, we light the menorah out, facing, facing outside by the window, by the door, not on our kitchen table, because it's all about spreading the light onto the inside. So while it is a very much a family experience, it's about sharing that light with the world around us. Now, the event itself is taking place on Sunday, December the 13th. How much is it to take part? Five pounds per car and there's sponsorship opportunities as well, advertising opportunities as well. Obviously, an event like this is, is a mastic, massive logistical operation and a funding operation as well. So there's, there's a sponsorship advertising opportunities at the event for every vehicle, five pounds per vehicle. And how can people find out more details? It's on our website, bushichabad.org forward slash drive dash in. Well, it's the great bushy drive-in Hanukkah celebration. We've been hearing about it from Rabbi Yosef Shafstein. Rabbi Yosef, thank you very much, Adi, for speaking to us on The Jewish Views. My pleasure and happy Hanukkah to everyone. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Well, Hanukkah is nearly upon us again, but how could we possibly let this marvellous occasion go by without some delicious-sounding advice courtesy of our Jewish domestic goddess, Denise Phillips? With Hanukkah around the corner, I want you to share my ideas for latkes with a difference. The traditional latke is made by frying grated potatoes and onions in oil, combined with egg and thickened with flour or matzo meal and served with apple sauce. On my website, I have written some new latke recipes including zaitar carrot baked latkes, vegan cauliflower and spring onion latkes served with apple and white horseradish sauce, and latkes with pickled cucumbers inside the mixture. Each recipe is quite different. I've used oats, ground almonds and breadcrumbs to thicken the mixture as an alternative to flour or matzo meal. Toppings for latkes can be more than apple sauce. Try adding smoked salmon, apple puree mixed with sour cream, pickled cucumber salsa, guacamole, tomato and basil, pesto, spring onion, sour cream and chives, sweet corn relish, goat's cheese, olives and chopped tomatoes or ratatouille. Or perhaps try a sweeter option. Try maybe Greek yogurt, honey and figs, cranberry sauce, toffee sauce, chopped fruit, nutella, blueberries, maple syrup or chopped banana and peanut butter and walnuts. The combinations are endless. These recipes involve frying the mixture in oil, but you can bake them in the oven for a lighter option. 
And if you want to make your luck as well and truly perfect, let me give you some useful tips. Squeeze all excess liquid out of the vegetables. You'll be amazed at how much water is in a potato. This will make sure that the lacquer will be crispy. Generously flavour the mixture as it cooks, as the flavour mellows during the cooking process. A little baking powder makes them lighter. And the oil needs to be hot before frying. Use rapeseed oil for best results. Don't overfill the frying pan with oil. Leave a four centimetre gap from the top to prevent oil from overflowing. And cook until golden on both sides. A good safety tip, use a splatter screen or lid to protect you and the hob. And drain on a rack, not absorbent paper. It just makes them soggy and greasy. And finish them off by baking in the oven to ensure they are extra crispy at 200 degrees centigrade for about 10 minutes. And if you would like to watch me make luckers, connect with me on Facebook to watch me live. Just link up to my name and request to be my friend. On Friday the 11th of December, I'm making baked luckers. And on Friday the 18th of December, I'm doing fried luckers. Both at 10 o'clock, but... It's all recorded. You can watch me at your leisure. Just scroll down on my Facebook group and you will find it. So have a fabulous Hanukkah and best dishes, Denise. Thank you very much to Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips with a rather splendid sounding suggestion with some lakas for Hanukkah. And of course, from all of us here in the Jewish Views, we wish you Hanukkah Sameach. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the month. And this time it comes from Rabbi Mark Goldsmith, Senior Rabbi at Edgware and Hendon Reform Synagogue. The story of Hanukkah that we tell when we light our Hanukkiahs is of course based on the one-day supply of oil that lasted for eight days when the Maccabees rededicated the temple. This year, as we light it, we can celebrate the one month's patience with the restrictions on our lives as we cope with COVID-19 that's already had to last for eight and for who knows how many more months. Just as when we light the Hanukkah candles, we do so in a spirit of hope for the Jewish future. So too can we do so in a spirit of hope for our community, despite this awful year. The word Hanukkah itself means dedication, and that's why we can have great hope today. Jews have continued to dedicate themselves to Judaism, despite the virus, by finding ways to safely attend worship at their synagogues and online through a wonderful variety of virtual services. We've dedicated ourselves to Jewish learning. The ability to do so from home has made learning accessible to people who couldn't normally participate. My Talmud class now includes many people who would have found it very difficult to come into synagogue to learn on a Sunday morning, but can easily do so from home. Our synagogues have dedicated themselves to the creativity needed to keep their congregations engaged in Jewish life. We can't meet for Kiddush or lunch clubs for the elderly, so many have organised food deliveries to their congregants' doorsteps. A large number of volunteers have been dedicated to relieving the loneliness of the isolated by phoning, visiting from the end of the front path, making extended family bubbles, being in contact more than we would normally do. We found ways to remain dedicated to the memory of the loved ones we've lost, who we were not able to physically accompany to their final resting place or hold an in-person shiver for. 
but we've held virtual Shiva prayers which felt especially meaningful as we included relatives from around the world through their screens. The terrible restrictions that Antiochus Epiphanes put on Judaism, leading to the Maccabee Rebellion, led, once they'd been fought off, to a newly strengthened Jewish people under the Hasmonean dynasty. If we keep hold of the Hanukkah, the dedication to creativity and accessibility that we've shown by continuing Jewish life through this COVID period, think how we could thrive as a people after it ends. Thank you very much to Rabbi Mark Goldsmith, Senior Rabbi at Edgeware and Hendon Reform Synagogue with our Rabbinic Thought for the Month. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views and indeed for 2020. All that's left for me to do is to say thank you to our guests, Daniel Kainer, Miriam Grabener and Rabbi Yosef Scharfstein. Of course, we must say thank you very much to Denise Phillips as well, our Jewish domestic goddess, and to you at home for listening. And we're certainly not going to forget to say thank you to producer Sue Greenberg, who as ever has worked tirelessly not just this month but throughout the year bringing this program together so thank you very much sue don't forget to subscribe to the jewish views in your podcast application that way you'll be able to hear any previous episode or be informed when new ones become available and if you would like any more information on anything that we have spoken about then you can always go to our website jewishviews.co.uk The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with JW3. But from me, Phil Dave, from the whole team, John Kay, Kate Fulton, Tony Honickberg, Clive Roslin, Viv Krieger, and of course, producer Sue. Thank you very much indeed to listening to The Jewish Views throughout 2020. And we very much hope that you would join us next year here on The Jewish Views. Hanukkah Sameach. Happy New Year. Goodbye.